Good morning, friends, brothers, and sisters. It is good to be with you again on this Lord's Day. Thank God for several weeks in a row of good weather. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him for His help as we're now going to look to the Bible. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you as we do every Lord's Day before we look to your word and we come to you in need, in need of your spirit to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. We pray that you would come and use this time in our lives. We pray that you would illuminate your word so that we might understand it. We pray that you would work in us so that we would have hearts that would love and receive your word. We pray above all things in this time that we would see Christ and that as we behold him, that you would transform us and conform us to his image. We pray that our faith would be sustained and strengthened. We pray that faith would be imparted so that we might trust your son. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen. Well, friends, when it comes to the sinfulness of our flesh, when it comes to what's really going on in our hearts and in our minds, we are all far worse off than we would ever care to admit. We have a hard time being honest with ourselves about our own sinfulness. And certainly we have a hard time being honest with one another in terms of the real, legitimate, honest confession of sin. Here at at CBC, one of the intentional aims of the pastors for our gatherings is for us to confess and acknowledge with regularity that we are sinners. And not just sinners, we are bad ones because there are no other kind. This happens early and often in our services, even from the welcome. We're reminded of who we are in our flesh. And that's by design. I've had conversations and correspondence with people who have been going to church for years and often have felt and thought that the last thing that could ever be done in a gathering of Christians is for all of us together to acknowledge that we are wretched sinners. It shouldn't be that way. We should be, because of Christ and the gospel, we should be quick to acknowledge our sin and quick to then confess the sufficiency of Christ in our place, quick to repent of sin and look to Christ anew. This regular confession and acknowledgement of sin in no way is intended to condone it or to act like it's okay. Sin is sadly normal, but it is never okay. But this regular confession of sin has everything to do with God's intimate knowledge of us and what he has said about our fallen flesh in his word. And it has everything to do with Jesus and his work in our place and the only hope that sinners could ever have for salvation. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open them up to John chapter 4, the Gospel of John chapter 4. We're going to be looking today at a, a familiar account for many, the Samaritan woman at the well. It comprises, or it is comprised, excuse me, of a number of verses from John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at John 4, 1 to 30, and then verses 39 to 42. So before we go any further, I'm going to read God's word for us, beginning with John chapter 4, 
in verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Skip down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. What I want to do is survey this text together, make our way through it, observe it, as we tend to do each week with a number of these accounts, make sure we understand what's happening. And then I want to offer two reflections. 
So that's the plan. Survey the text and then two reflections for us. If we look back at the first seven verses or so, we see the occasion for this conversation, the occasion for this interchange. Jesus is leaving Judea to return to Galilee. And in so doing, he must pass through Samaria. This is just an issue of geography and the way of travel. He comes in verse 5 to a town called Sychar and sits down at Jacob's well. Now, this is the Jacob of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then in the beginning of verse 7, we see that a woman from Samaria comes to the well to draw water. And then the interchange begins in the second half of verse 7. Jesus asks the Samaritan woman for a drink. We read in verse 8, parenthetically, that his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. There was no one else to help him, so he asks this woman. The woman is surprised in verse 9 that Jesus even spoke to her. I mean, he's a man and she's a woman. That's one thing in this cultural situation. But more importantly, he is a Jew and she is a Samaritan. So a little bit of background here. We're told in the text that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, why was that the case? It's because Jews viewed Samaritans as both ethnic and religious half-breeds. After King Solomon's reign, Israel, many may know, was split into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel had a capital city of Samaria. The southern kingdom of Judah had its capital in the city of Jerusalem. The northern kingdom, again, its capital city, Samaria, was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And most of the Israelites at that point were deported out of the land, and the land was settled by foreigners who intermarried with the surviving Israelites and produced the Samaritans. So in addition to being, from the perspective of the Jews, half-breeds ethnically, they also were half-breeds religiously because their religion had been tainted with the paganism of the people who had settled the land. Samaritans only viewed the book of Moses, that is the, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they only viewed those books as canonical, whereas the Hebrew scriptures that the Jews upheld would have also included the history books, the writings, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, as well as the prophets. And the Samaritans had even built their own temple on Mount Gerizim to rival the temple in Jerusalem. So this is the reason for the tension between Jews and Samaritans. Then beginning in verse 10, we see that Jesus is not going to waste any time in shifting the conversation. He immediately is going to offer the gospel, the gift of God that is salvation. In verse 10, Jesus does this. If you knew the gift of God, he says to the woman, that is salvation, right? And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, that is the Christ, the Messiah of God is speaking to you. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. You would have asked the Christ, and he would save you. He would give you eternal life. The woman responds in verse 11. She clearly doesn't understand what's going on yet. We can't blame her. She says to him, sir, you don't have anything to draw water with, and the well is really deep. Where are you going to get this living water that you're talking about? And then this, are you greater Then our father Jacob, the irony of that question. Yes, actually, quite greater. 
This is the Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who has taken on flesh sitting and speaking with her. Then in verse 13, Jesus responds to her. Whoever drinks of this water, the water from the well, will be thirsty again. This is how it goes. But whoever drinks of the water I give will never be thirsty again. And in, in the original, the language is perhaps even stronger. It's will never be thirsty again forever, like into the age, eternally. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, I give eternal life. I give you something that will mean that your soul will never thirst again forever. The woman responds in verse 15. Sir, give me this water so I won't be thirsty anymore. And so I won't have to come here to keep drawing water. So she still does not yet fully understand. Then things intensify, if possible, in verse 16. Verses 16 to 18 are remarkable in terms of the interchange that they contain. Jesus says to the woman in verse 16, after she has said, sir, give me this living water. Jesus says, okay, go and call your husband and then come come here, both of you. And the woman responds by saying, well, I, I don't have a husband. To which Jesus says, you're right. You've had five. And the man that you have right now is not your husband. What you've said is true. It's a jaw drop moment. Can't imagine having that kind of an interchange with another human being who knows all of these things about the innermost details of your, your life. And the woman responds, sir, I, I perceive that you're a prophet because you know this about me. But then she goes on immediately to kind of shift the conversation to one about religion and about the proper place to worship God. We see that happen in verses 19 and 20. Jesus is going to play the game. He responds to her, beginning in verse 21, about religion and legitimate worship of God the Father. He says that the time is coming when God's presence, the Father's presence, will not be uniquely in the temple. There will be no definitive place of worship. There is no such thing anymore, now that Christ has come, of like sanctified holy ground. Jesus asserts also that salvation is from the Jews. He says, you, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know because salvation comes from the Jews. A number of things, I think, are meant by Christ there. Salvation is from the Jews in that it comes through the Jewish Messiah, namely him, himself. And it is through the Jews that God's plan of redemption has been revealed. I think Romans chapter 3 and verse 2, to the Jews belong the oracles of God, the revelation of God. God had worked in and through the Jewish people up to this point in redemptive history. And in addition, also in view, I think could be the fact that the Jews upheld all of God's revelation, not just the book of Moses. The hour is coming, Christ says. Verse 23, the hour is coming. He's talking about his death and resurrection and is now here. That is, I am already present. Messiah is already come. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Legitimate worship, friends, is only made possible by the Holy Spirit and is always grounded in the truth, in the revelation of God. We worship God on his terms or not at all. 
We rely upon the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us, and we trust him to use the ordinary means that God has given, that he has given in his word to accomplish his extraordinary ends in our lives. And we worship according to, to the book. We do what we do in worship because we are told to do it in scripture. We arrange our worship according to what God has revealed in his word. If we don't, anything that we get right would be an accident. God desires, we read, that we worship him in the spirit according to his truth. And then in verse 25, the woman says, I know that the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he'll tell us everything. She has already perceived, at least she has said, I, I perceive, sir, that you're a prophet. And yet she still anticipates that the Christ is coming. And then Jesus, to clear it all up in verse 26, responds to her again and says, I who speak to you am he. I am the Christ. I am the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of the world. And in fact, I am your Savior. The woman leaves in, in verses 27 to 30. She's going to leave and go back into town as the disciples show up on the scene and see Jesus having this conversation. She goes back into town and begins to tell people about what's happened. Come and see this man who told me everything that I ever did. And so we see in verse 30 that there were many people from the town going out and coming to Christ. Then in verses 39 to 42, we see that many of the Samaritans believe in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And then they come and greet Christ themselves, speak to him themselves, ask him to stay. He does. And many more believe because of the word of Christ. And they say to the woman, verse 42, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So a couple of reflections for us in our time that we have left this morning. Number one, I'm picking up here on the language of verse 10. Salvation is the gift of God, and it comes only through Messiah. Again, very clear, straightforward teaching of Scripture. Salvation is the gift of God, and it comes only through Messiah. Verse 10 reads, Jesus speaking to the woman, If you knew the gift of God, eternal life, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, the Messiah, you would have asked the Christ and he would give you eternal life. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast away. Jesus speaks of his sheep in John chapter 10, and he says these very words, that I give them eternal life. I give it to them. Wages, brothers and sisters, are earned. They are compensation for work done. Gifts, however, are different. Romans chapter 4 and verse 4 and 5, we read, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That statement, but whoever believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, is a scandalous statement broadly speaking. 
No other religion in the world believes such a thing, that ungodly people would be declared righteous. Every other system of religion tells us that we need to do something in order to be counted righteous, not receive something done on our behalf. God justifies the ungodly, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 6 and verse 23. Thinking more about this free gift and that it only comes to us in Messiah, if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. We're just going to look at a few verses here from Romans chapter 5 for a moment. Thinking about the free gift of God and how it comes only in Christ Jesus. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, Paul says, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, death and horror and everything that's bad in the world came into the world through sin, through the original transgression of our first parents. And so death spread to all men because all sin. Death reigns. Skip down to verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification, the declaration of righteousness. Verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, there's that language again, free gift of righteousness, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that is, all who are in Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men, namely all who are in Christ. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many who were in Adam were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many who are in Christ will be made righteous. We are born naturally into Adam. This is a state of sin and death and condemnation. We are united to Christ, on the other hand, by faith. This occurs via the new birth produced by God's Holy Spirit in us. To be in Christ Jesus by faith is to have that free gift of eternal life by grace, by God's gift on the basis of Christ's work and Christ's merit. Second reflection for us. Number two. This is regarding the condition of the woman and Jesus' intimate knowledge of her. Let's think together about this. The condition of the woman, and by that I don't mean physically so much as I mean just spiritually, emotionally, holistically. Her condition and then Jesus' intimate knowledge of her. This woman that we read about in John chapter 4 is living a life of bondage and emptiness. She is, as the song says, looking for love in all the wrong places. Her life, like our lives, is not clean and tidy. There's a lot of ugliness in it. We wouldn't suspect that she grew up thinking, you know, I'm, I'm going to make it my goal to have five marriages. And then after the fifth marriage falls apart, 
I'll get another man. Then think about Jesus' breathtaking honesty with her. There's no dancing around things in this conversation. Go bring your husband, he says. Well, I, I don't have one. You're right. You've had five. And the man that you've got now is not your husband. Friends, the things that we often confess about ourselves are true, but often what we confess about ourselves is far short of the whole truth in terms of what's really going on. We do this with each other, and we even can do this before God, at least I know I have. It's like we can't even bring ourselves to confess to God what's really going on in our hearts, what's really going on in our minds, because we are horrified at what's there. It's like if we don't say the whole ugly truth, even to God, about what we've done or what's in our hearts, we can somehow avoid having to stare it in the face. There are a number of reasons we do this. Guilt, shame, pride, self-righteousness, fear. We spend a lot of time and energy whitewashing our lives, to use the language of Christ, making them look really good from one vantage point, but underneath it's not so good. Brothers and sisters, though, here is the beauty of God's word and the beauty of the gospel. God knows us completely. He knows us intimately. He knows us perfectly. There is nothing about us at the level of our thoughts, at the level of our feelings, at the level of our desires, and certainly our actions that God does not know. He sees and knows everything that's in our hearts and in our minds. He sees and knows everything that we want and crave and chase after. He's very direct in his word in telling us who and what we are, just like Christ is in this encounter here. I don't have a husband. You're right. You've had five. And you've got another man and he's not your husband either. But God, praise be to his name, does not stop there with the diagnosis, as accurate as it is. He offers us, in the midst of our ruin and brokenness and shame and guilt, he offers us the free gift of eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ. He tells us, even as we still struggle against the flesh and as we battle against sin, he tells us that in Christ, by faith, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Now, this has all kinds of implications for life in the church. The safety of the gospel, the safety that the gospel of Christ provides makes possible honesty and openness amongst the saints. Honest and transparent confession of sin to God and one another, when that's happening in the church, 
makes real growth and sanctification possible. I'm sure you've thought about that before. How real growth and maturation and change and sanctification in the Christian life is hindered by these kind of halfway confessions of sin. The sort of double life that we tend to lead. But when we are able, because of Christ, to stare our sin in the face and call it what it is and confess it to God and confess it to one another, God uses that by His Spirit as we look to Christ to bring about meaningful change. So confess your sin honestly to the Lord. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, as we read over had read over us earlier after we had confessed our sin. Make it a habit, brothers and sisters, of honestly confessing your sin to one another. James 5, 16. Confess your sins to one another. And as you do that, as you confess sin to one another, restore one another. Speak the gospel to one another. Pray for each other as you've confessed sin. Pray for God's grace that you might not fall. Pray for God's grace that you might live unto him. Do that for and with each other. Walk together in the light. We went through 1 John as, as a church not that long ago. We want to be in the light as he is in the light. And in that context of 1 John 1, John tells us very clearly that if we say we have no sin, we make God a liar and the truth isn't in us. To walk in the light is to be honest about these things and to confess our sins and to confess Christ and the message about him. Walk together in brotherly love and honesty. The gospel makes that possible. Do you long to be truly known and at the same time truly loved? I trust you do. I do. The message of the gospel is that in Christ Jesus, we are both truly known, sins and all, and truly loved. Do you long to have your guilt atoned for? Because you're really guilty. What is atoned for in Christ? Do you long to have your shame covered? Because like me, you have plenty of that. Your shame is covered in Christ. Do you long to be absolved of sin because you are a great sinner? You are absolved and forgiven in Christ Jesus. Do you long for righteousness because you don't have it in and of yourself? In Christ by faith, his righteous life is yours. As you consider not only God's diagnosis of us, but then the free gift of salvation that he offers to us by faith in Christ. As you consider how you have been adopted and loved and known by God the Father in Christ Jesus. As we consider these things, we say what a God he is. What a gospel this is. The standard of righteousness has not been lowered at all in order for sinners to be reconciled to God. 
The standard has always been and will be perfection, and God saves in such a way that is in perfect harmony with His holiness. He saves in such a way where His justice is completely satisfied by Christ on behalf of sinners. What good news this is. Not that we save ourselves, but that God saves people like us. Just like the Samaritan woman, whose life is far from clean. Jesus gives us, we don't earn it, he gives us atonement and forgiveness and absolution. He gives us righteousness and holiness. He gives us resurrection. He gives us eternal life. He gives us joy. He gives us peace. And he gives us rest. Praise be to his name. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now that the sermon is over and we are in just as much need of your help now as before we started. We pray that you would take your word and that you would drive it into our hearts and minds, that you would use it to stir us up toward greater love for you and greater love for our neighbor. Stir us up to gratitude and joy. Give us peace and rest as we consider Christ. Stir us up to good works for your honor and for the good of our brothers and sisters and the good of our neighbor. We pray now that as we come to the Lord's table to receive the merits of Christ by faith, that you would continue to minister to us as we contemplate the work of Christ. We pray for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Friends, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus, on the last night of his earthly life with his disciples, he takes bread, beginning in verse 19 of Luke 22, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my body, which is given for you. It's not just that that Christ died, it's a It's a very personal transaction. He died for you. Do this, he says, in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This cup that is poured out for you. So when you come forward to receive the the bread and the juice today, you are doing it in remembrance of what Christ has done. You are proclaiming his death until he comes, and you are coming by faith to receive what he has done for you, his body broken for you, his blood shed for you. And in so doing, we pray that the Spirit of God uses what we're about to do to give us peace and assurance and to stir our hearts in love and gratitude to God. Just a few words about logistics. It's a little bit different doing communion out here versus doing it inside. We will take a few minutes in silence to pray and reflect and confess sin, pray for each other, thank God for what he has done for us. And then when the music begins to play, you can begin coming forward to the table. We ask that anybody who's going to come forward to acquire elements be wearing a mask. If you are uncomfortable to come forward, to acquire elements. We'll have a couple of volunteers walking around. Let that be known, and we will happily try to serve you and bring the elements to you so that you can partake of the Lord's table 
with us that way. You do not need to be a member of Covenant Baptist Church in order to partake of the supper with us this morning. We do ask that you be a baptized believer, though, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that you not be under the discipline of a gospel-preaching church anywhere. Brothers and sisters, thanks be to God for Christ and what he has done in our place. Let's now go to God and use these next few moments in silence. When the music plays, we will come forward to receive the merits of Christ by faith.